Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 17. It is a special delight to be able to begin again to consider this wonderful gospel. We have determined that tonight we will take up the study of John again this evening and then ordinarily in the next several months we'll be dealing with it on the Lord's Day morning because it does give itself, lend itself especially to evangelistic application and because on Sunday mornings often we have many come among us who are visitors and do not Uh, know the Lord, and so we thought it would be good to use this time, and especially coming to the time of the end of the gospel and the emphasis on the passion of our Lord, so that we may uh, give it all of its uh, opportunity in reaching sinners for whom we often in this place pray. But this week we're starting in the 17th chapter of John in the evening, and trust that it will not confuse you as to the order of things when we uh, move it back to the mornings next week. Follow with me, please, as I read in your hearing this entire chapter so that we may get it in its fullness and get something of the essence of this wonderful high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he has just closed his exhortation and his comforting discourse with the apostles regarding the coming of the Spirit after his departure with these words in verse 33 of chapter 16. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. These things spoke Jesus, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee, even as thou gavest him authority over all flesh, that to all whom thou hast given him, he should give eternal life. And this is life eternal, that they should know thee, the only true God, and him whom thou didst send, even Jesus Christ. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I manifested thy name unto the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. Now they know that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are from thee. For the words which thou gavest me I have given unto them, and they received them, and knew of a truth that I came forth from thee, and they believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all things that are mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no more in the world, and these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, 
Keep them in thy name which thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I kept them in thy name which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that you should take them from the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil, or the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, Thy word is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, even so sent I them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Neither for these only do I pray, but for them also that believe on me through their word, or that should believe or shall believe on me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me, and the glory which thou hast given me I have given unto them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me that they may be perfected into one, that the world may know that thou didst send me and loved me, even as thou lovest me, that loves them, even as thou lovest me. Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father, the world knew thee not, but I knew thee, and these knew that thou didst send me, and I made known unto them thy name, and will make it known, that the love wherewith thou lovest me may be in them, and I in them. Let us bow together and pray. Our Father, it is indeed of the highest privilege that we, men and women of dust, and sinners at that, have been granted the right to address you even as your only begotten Son addressed you, and to call you Father. O oh, Father, we bow in your presence now in the face of this marvelous passage of Scripture. And we stand before you humbled and sit before you amazed, at once recognizing that we have entered onto holy ground and sensing that we are dealing with things that are beyond us. And at the same time confessing that 
We desire to look into these things and understand them and feel them in the heart and live in the light of them. O Lord, we pray that you would help us to approach these passages of Scripture with holy humility, with awe, with sobriety, with teachability, that you would teach us the significance of these words, that you, by your Spirit, may come near to us and make the fullness of this passage to weigh upon our hearts and to have its way in us. O Lord, we tremble to deal with this text. We know we're inadequate both to understand it or to teach it. And so we ask you to help us. We ask you to help us. It is your word. You have given it to us. Instruct us, O Lord. Open our minds that we may understand the things written in the Scriptures. Open our hearts that we may receive them and obey them. Hear our prayer. Help us now, O God, our Father, through your Spirit, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I thought it might be helpful to you, since it's been so long since we have dealt with the Gospel of John, and no doubt many of you are, have come into the church since we last preached in this section of Scripture to bring you briefly up to date as to what we're dealing with in this wonderful Gospel. Let me first remind you of the purpose of the writing of the Gospel of John, which he himself states in this Gospel, and that purpose is that the reader of this Gospel may believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and in believing have everlasting life. A simple purpose, the writing of the Gospel in order that the reader may be saved. And then the scheme of this gospel. And the scheme that unfolds before us as we go through the gospel of John is the increasing revelation of the glory of Christ to the world and the growing conflict and hostility that he encounters from sinners in the light of that increasing revelation you'll see unfolded from the beginning of the book all the way toward the end the increasing exposure of Christ in his identity. The, the increasing opening up of his glory as the Son of God. In the use of all the means that he has in this gospel, you'll see him unveiling himself, <coughs> the Father unveiling him, and as he further unveils who he is, you'll see the heat against him getting hotter and the pressure against him increasing, and the conflict growing to its culmination in his death. And then the tapestry that makes up the Gospel of John. The purpose is that you may believe on the Son of God and in believing have eternal life. The scheme is the increasing revelation of the glory of Christ and the growing conflict that he encounters from sinners in the face of that increasing revelation the tapestry or the weaving of the cloth is contrast. The Apostle John, by the Spirit of God, as he opens up this gospel, uses contrast masterfully. It becomes the very tapestry and the weaving of his gospel. Life and death. Light and darkness. Spirit and flesh. Truth and lie or the liar, and on and on you see these great contrasts drawn out by the gospel so that we may see in this weaving of these tapestries the truth lying in the person 
and in the work of Christ. And then the method that the apostle uses in this gospel, that the Spirit of God has been pleased to use to teach us the principles found here, is the method of three kinds of approaches. First, there are seven signs in the Gospel of John. You may well remember that we have considered those seven signs who, which occur in the first eleven chapters of the Gospel. The first one, remember, was the turning of water into wine at the marriage feast in Cana in chapter 2, whereby the Lord showed that he has authority over all things and revealed his glory, as you remember, to a select few. Most people had no idea where that water had become wine, but the servants knew. A very limited number found out who they were dealing with, but he was, he was selective with whom he revealed himself. The second sign was the healing of the nobleman's son in chapter 4, showing that the Lord even had authority over the distances of geography. He didn't even have to go over the mountains back to the nobleman's son's house and heal it. He simply from, from the distance spoke the word, and when the nobleman got back home, they said, Your son's well. And he inquired what hour he had been raised, and it turned out it was the exact hour that the Lord had said, Go, your son is well. So the Lord showed that he was not limited by time and space in his ability to reach out and deliver sinners and, and helpless people from their problem and from their need. Do you see some encouragement in that sign? And the third sign in chapter 5 was the raising up of a lame man. And you remember that the Lord at the pool of Bethesda raised this lame man and got into trouble with the Pharisees because he did it on the Sabbath. And this showed his authority to do the very work of God. And remember that the argument that they brought against him was that he was violating the Sabbath. And his response was what? Hitherto does my father work and, I'll, and I work. All I've done today on the Sabbath is what my father always does. I've done his will today. My father and I continue to work. This work is our work. This is Sabbath work. And then you remember what they said in response to his defense. They said, now you've not only violated the Sabbath, you've made yourself equal with God. Because when he said, my father works and I work, they understood his claim to be equal with God. And so in that sign, he shows his authority as divine, working the divine work, as equal with God and having the right to do God's work which later we find includes the raising of the dead. In fact, in this very chapter, he announces the authority the Father has given him to, have, to give life to whom he will, to execute judgment in the earth, to raise the spiritually dead, and, and in the last day, to come and judge the living and the dead, the righteous and the wicked. Then in, chap then in the chapter 6, we come to the fourth sign, in which he multiplied the loaves on the other side of the Sea of Tiberias showing his authority to meet all kinds of human need and sustain our life, and then giving a sign of what he meant by that sign as himself being the bread of life, that if we feed upon him, we shall never hunger. If we feast upon him, the manna from heaven, we shall have our souls satisfied. Then the fifth sign was the sign of walking on the water in chapter 6, the last part of that chapter, showing that the Lord Jesus has authority over creation and that he exercises that authority over creation for the good of his disciples. He always uses his power over the earth and over the elements for our good. 
even when it appears that it's not for our good. And remember, he was on the mountain probably praying. They were out laboring against the storm, worrying and about to panic. Then he comes walking to them on the water. The storm is here, is, is calmed and immediately they find themselves at the desired haven. So another sign giving a warm and tender showing of what Christ is to his people in his power. And then the sixth sign regarding the healing of the man born blind in chapter 9 where the Lord from this teaches us that he is the light of the world. He gives light to men. He makes blind men see. And then you remember that he taught that if you could see yourself as blind, then you could see. But if you consider yourself as seeing and in need of no help from him, then your blindness remains. So that sign shows his authority to give light to the blinded soul's eyes and to teach the truth to those who otherwise would never hear it. And then the seventh sign in chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, showing the ultimate authority of Christ to raise the dead. He has authority over death and hell and has the right to give life to whom he will. Those seven signs make up part of the methodology of the apostle in laying out uh, this gospel. But the second element of the methodology is the various encounters that the Lord has with those who are his enemies and others. There are at least seven, and maybe eight or nine, depending on how you count them, if you would consider some of these interactions of discourses as encounters. But ordinarily, he encounters either the disciples in the first chapter, remember how he spoke to Nathaniel and surprised him by remembering that by seeing him when he was under the fig tree and prophesying over him and amazing Nathaniel. Then in chapter 2, the encounter in the temple when he overthrew the money changers. Then in chapter 3, the encounter with Nicodemus by night when the man came to him as a Pharisee and the Lord taught him about the necessity of being born from the Spirit, being born from above. Then in chapter 4, the encounter with the woman at the well in Sychar in Samaria, where he taught her about the water of life. Then in chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 10, further encounters that bring about weaving into this tapestry the story of how his glory as the Son of God is fully manifested and how these encounters with the Pharisees and his enemies finally culminate in his crucifixion. You recall in chapters 7, 8, and 10, he literally has to fight off their enmity after they hear his teaching and see his signs. They, could, they accuse him of this, they accuse him of that, they fuss about this, they fuss about that, and he's constantly teaching out of it. And then that leads to the third element of the methodology of the gospel, not only the seven signs and at least the seven encounters, but there are seven discourses in the book of John where usually following up on the signs, there's need to be teaching. And he teaches and explains the significance of the signs. And in other occasions, he gives these teachings. In chapter 3, the new birth. In chapter 4, the water of life. In chapter 5, the authority of the divine Son of God. In chapter 6, the bread of life. In chapter 7, the life-giving spirit. Out of uh, our bellies, he said, we're going to flow rivers of living water. In chapter 8, the light of the world. And in chapter 10, 7 and chapter 10, the seventh discourse, that wonderful and comforting and thrilling passage on the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. And you recall that we studied that chapter in the midst of our consideration of the great doctrines of grace. 
we considered the points of Calvinism, as we called them, and in chapter 10 we examined the doctrine of the atonement and saw the, 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 the theological context of the atonement, that this was a high priest who was coming voluntarily to offer his life for his people, not merely a victim being put to death by his enemies, but one who voluntarily died and laid down his life and had the power to lay it down and the power to raise it up. And in the doing of that, he gave life to his sheep. So these signs, these encounters, these discourses open up for us the truths represented in the Gospel of John. <coughs> you may well have noticed, however, that the signs and the encounters and the discourses virtually come to an end at the, t at the end of chapter 11. After chapter 11, all this methodology is done away, and then we have the Lord turning in to his own inner circle of apostles and preparing them for the hour of his departure. We might say that in chapter 12, the last public ministry before his passion is set before us, in which we see various groups of people and individuals giving him glory. It's sort of like the icing on the cake. We've seen the unveiling of his glory, and when we get to chapter 12, we see him getting glory from all sorts of people. First, Mary, who worships at his feet and, re and uh, uh, is carried away with her worship, even to the rebuke of her sister Martha. Then the multitude that give glory to him. Then the Greeks that come seeking him and thereby glorify him as the Son of God. And in the various verses in chapter 12, the various quotations from the Old Testament prophets who gave him glory and who spoke of him. Then in the latter part of the chapter, the Father gave him glory. And finally, he himself magnified his own glory in testifying of his own power to save and his own righteous will and authority. And so, chapter 12, as it were, brings us to a conclusion of God's glorious Son unveiled and now beginning to be seen for what he is by many who have followed him, have seen his signs, and have heard him teach. But then chapter 13, he comes into that inner circle of his apostles, and as it enters into the discussion, you recall, the Lord, having loved his own that were in the world, loves them to the end. And chapter 13 opens up the way the Lord Jesus loved his own so beautifully. And you can see in that very chapter the groundwork laid for what we're considering in chapter 17. The whole picture here is the love of Christ for his people. It's a special, peculiar love he has for his sheep, for those in the inner circle, for that bedraggled remnant, those outcasts of the world, the foolish things of the world, the weak, the despised, the poor, the uh, unwise, the uh, unnoble of the world. The Lord loves his people. And you see that opened up to us from chapter 13 on. In chapter 13, remember his great example of service as he girded himself with a towel and bathed their feet and taught them that they ought to have that same mantle of servanthood and humility and readiness to think of others that he exemplified before them. And then in his love for those apostles, following that last supper with them, in chapters 14 through 16, you recall that the Lord gave them great encouragement because he was preparing them for the hour of his departure. And the Lord Jesus knew that when he left, they were going to be confused. 
He knew there was going to be a shock to them. He knew that somehow there was going to be great trouble among them, and so he encouraged them in three chapters. And remember the central theme of those chapters? And how, what we preached upon uh, over, well, I don't know how long ago, we concentrated in those three chapters on the biblical doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Because it was in those three chapters that the Lord said, Don't be afraid, I'm leaving, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. Trust God, trust me, I'm coming back to receive you to myself, and if I go away, I'll send another comforter. The holy paraclete called alongside you. Don't be alarmed, he'll lead you into all truth. He'll teach you the things you cannot bear now. Don't be alarmed, don't panic. I'm leaving, but I'm not leaving. I'm leaving, but I'm coming. I'm leaving, but I'm sending another to do what I've been doing. And when he comes, you'll see and do greater things than you've seen and done while I was here in the flesh. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is going to provide for the church greater things than the personal presence of Jesus of Nazareth in the flesh. That's what he's saying. The Spirit of God is going to come. He's going to be nearer you than I was able to be near you. He's going to be closer. He's going to give power. He's going to spread the influence of truth much further than what been, has been spread in my earthly time with you. So those three chapters are designed to encourage his beloved who are going to be left alone in the world. And that's why the last verse of chapter 16 says, in this world, you're going to have trouble. He recognizes it. He knows it. He knows that it's going to be tough. And he tells them ahead of time that's going to be the case. Don't think that after I've died and after I've risen, that all of a sudden you're going to be seated on my right hand and on my left in my kingdom and we're going to put the Romans down and all bad and evil and trouble is going to be done away. Not at all. In this world, for an extended period of time after I've left, you're going to have real trouble. Don't think it's inconsistent with Christian living that you're going to have trouble. Don't think it to be a surprise when you're persecuted. Don't think it to be unusual when famine, wars and rumors of wars, pestilence and all sorts of earthquakes and upheavals and po politics in the world trouble you, cause your economy to have difficulty and you have problems. And this world is going to have trouble. In fact, it's very encouraging for him to have said that, isn't it? Because if he hadn't said it, you'd be confused, wouldn't you? If You'd be wondering... Did it really all count? Was it really what we thought it was going to be? The Lord left. How do we even know he died and rose? Because look at the way the world is. It appears that he has not succeeded. It appears that most people are turning away from truth rather than turning to it. This doesn't look like the triumph of Christ to me. But he told us that would be the way it would be. So since I know it's no surprise to him, I don't have to be thrown off my guard when it comes as a surprise to me. But then remember what he said? In the midst of that tribulation, you be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And if there's any theme of John in the gospel, in the first and second and third epistle, and in the book of Revelation, it's that theme, that the Lord Jesus Christ has overcome the devil and the world in overcoming all the fruit of sin. If there's any theme for us to draw from throughout John's writings, it's that theme. And you remember John was writing in the latter part of the first century, most of it under the reign of the wicked Domitian 
a Caesar who was wiping Christians out, who was forcing them to set up images of worship to him around in the Roman cities where their churches were, and if they did not bow and worship the image of the Caesar, they could not participate in the benefits of Rome, and many of them were put to death. John was writing during that period. And so it's very encouraging at the end of the first century to have this apostle being able by the Spirit of God to put into print these wonderful truths of encouragement and consolation to an otherwise disheveled and confused and discouraged people. In this world you'll have trouble. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And so as long as we can see through his eyes and look not on the things which are seen, but on the things which are unseen, as long as we walk by faith and not by sight, we do not have to be anything but of good cheer. There will be continual pains and sorrows in our hearts regarding the needs of our world, but there will always be, if we see things through his eyes, rightly, good cheer, even in the midst of our most difficult trouble and difficulty. The Lord Jesus has given us that because he's overcome the world. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And that then leads us into chapter 17. Chapter 17 comes just after the Last Supper, just after his last public discourse, just after his last big teaching thing to his disciples, just before his death. What a time for this prayer. But let me suggest to you this prayer constitutes for us an inestimable privilege. Do you know what it is the Lord has given to us in chapter 17 of John? He has allowed us, as it were, to enter into the very holy of holies in heaven. He's allowed you to go into the presence of the throne of God and to listen in on communion with him and his Father. He has allowed us to come in as, with our shoes off, being quiet, and to take in the most glorious and noble collection of words the human race has ever had given to it. He's let you listen to the communal prayer of the eternal Son of God to his everlasting Father in terms that should not be granted to men unless there's high privilege and great grace given to them. I wish I understood more of this chapter than I do. I wish I could feel the weight of what it means for me to be able to hear God the Son speaking intimately to God the Father. I wish I could see all the implication of that so it would have the effect on me. I know it ought to have. But I know this, that just the fact that I'm able to get in on that though I don't see it all and don't feel it all and it doesn't have the effect on me it ought to have, tells me I ought to be very careful how I approach this chapter. It tells me I need to be very cautious how I open it up. And I have to tell you, I enter this series with trembling and with fear, and I charge you to enter the study the same. Be cautious how you handle it. Do not treat this as something typical. Do not approach this as business as usual. Do not come to this section of the Bible and pass through it lightly. This is of the highest nobility, of the sweetest privilege, of the grandest majesty. There is nothing ever that you will hear with your ears that will be more surpassing than what you'll hear in this chapter. 
Pray that God would give you understanding and insight and a heartfelt knowledge of these things and what they mean. Now this is the longest of the recorded prayers of Jesus in the Bible. This is the Lord's Prayer. The other one that's called the Lord's Prayer is a model prayer in which he taught principles and the manner and type of praying that we ought to do. And some of the things he taught us to pray in that prayer, he can't pray. Forgive us our sins. He can't pray that. He doesn't need to pray that. But much of what's prayed in this prayer, we can't pray. Because it belongs only to the Son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ has left this prayer with us. This is the Lord's Prayer. It's seldom in history expounded. The other one has been given much more treatment than this one. I'm not sure why, but one reason may be because this one's so difficult to comprehend, because men have been afraid to handle it. It is holy ground, especially holy ground, as all Scripture is. But this passage has a surpassing grandeur and uh, sanctity about it. This is special. And yet another reason, it seems to me, may well be the tendency of our world to prefer to expound those things which speak of us and what we do rather than to see our substitute and our intercessor and to delve into those things that make us and force us to concentrate on the need for our sins to be dealt with by another and by a priest. The surpassing gospel truths in this passage uh, glaring at us frightens some of us away, perhaps. We may learn in this prayer the objects of prayer, in other words, what we ought to pray for. We may learn in this prayer the manner of prayer, how we ought to pray, the spirit of our prayer. We may learn in this prayer the basis of prayer, or by what confidence we may expect to be answered when we pray. We may learn much from this prayer. It is a wonderful prayer and a great exemplary prayer, though there's some in it that we cannot pray because we have not the right. Listen to what John Brown says in his declaration about this chapter. He says about this prayer, It is the utterance of the mind and heart of the God-man. In the very crisis of his great undertaking, in the immediate prospect of completing by the sacrifice of himself the work which had been given him to do and for the accomplishment of which he had become incarnate. It is the utterance of these to the Father who had sent him. What a concentration of thought and affection is there in these few sentences. How full of grace, how full of truth, how condensed, yet how clear the thoughts, how deep, yet how calm the feelings which are here, so far as the capabilities of human language permit, worthily expressed. All is natural and simple in thought and language, nothing intricate or elaborate, yet there is a wit in the conceptions which the human understanding cannot measure a depth in the emotions which it cannot fathom. There is no bringing out of these plain words all that is seen and felt to be in them. It is so rich, so wide, so deep, no one can fathom it. A nobler, holier, more useful, or more pathetic utterance, as Melanchthon was never made on earth or in heaven. We should never read or meditate on any of the declarations of the word of God without feeling that we're on holy ground. But here, assuredly, we're not only in the holy land, in the holy city, in the precincts of the temple, we're in the temple itself. Nay, we are in its inmost aditum, not only in the holy place, but in the holy of holies. We are called on to listen to the incarnate Son, 
telling his Father in heaven what he thought and what he desired in reference to the work in which the glory of God and the salvation of men were equally involved. We're called to see him unveiling the hidden mysteries of wisdom and kindness in the economy of grace, disclosing the immeasurable vastness of its plans and the infinity of the love which formed and executed them. That's what this prayer has for us. Jesus had declared the most wonderful and comforting things ever heard to his apostles just before this. Now, what does he do? Having taught them what he's taught them and given the promises to them that he's promised them, what does he do? He commits it all to prayer. He takes all these promises that he himself as God has the right and is going to finish and complete and he goes to prayer. And he beseeches his Father to bring to pass all that for which he came into the world. There's no empty, idle confidence in the Lord Jesus that says, well, it's going to take care of itself. There's no fatalism here. There's no boastfulness in him. He goes to prayer. He lifts his eyes to heaven and he beseeches his holy, his righteous Father to grant all the things which he himself has just promised to the apostles will come to pass. What an example to us. Dear brethren, how prayerless we are. In the face of what our Lord Jesus exemplifies in his own life, how prayerless we are. How much we undertake without consulting God. How much we do thinking we have no problem with it. Whether it be little or whether it be great, we ought to bathe it all in prayer. Uh, if anybody were ever dependent on God for anything, we are. And as one has said, it is the most eloquent boast of self-dependence and self-sufficiency that we're prayerless. When you don't pray, it's not because you didn't have time. It is because in your heart of hearts you didn't believe it necessary. When you go for seasons in which you don't consult God earnestly, it is not because it's just an unspoken dullness in you. It is because down deep it hasn't gripped you yet that you must pray. You don't understand it because you still see yourself as sufficient in yourself. And to the degree that you pray, to the earnestness that you pray, to the frequency that you pray, you tell how you really feel about on whom you are dependent. Now judge yourself by your prayerness, by your praying, by your habit of prayer. Evaluate your real thinking, your real heartfelt view of God and yourself you'll find an accurate picture of yourself in the time, in the way that you pray. The Lord Jesus sets a wonderful example before us. He commits all this to prayer. He's praying for the very things he's promised. But let me say that in order to understand this chapter, in order to understand the book, in order to understand our salvation, we've got to comprehend a few things about the Lord Jesus as he prays. Let me give you first a brief outline of this prayer and then let me open up tonight and with the minutes that remain to us, Christ, the things we can see in him and need to understand about him that will make it possible for us to enter into some degree of understanding of this passage. First of all, we can divide it up into two parts. In the first part, there is the address. In chapter 1, he lifted his eyes to heaven. In verse 1, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father. He addresses the prayer to his Father. And then the second part of the outline of this chapter of this prayer is the prayer itself. There's the address, 
And then there's the prayer that make up both his request and his arguments for those requests. And there are three parts to this prayer. There's the first part is he prays for himself. The second part, he prays for his apostles. And the third part, he prays for the church. Not just those that God had given him then and the apostles, but all those who were going to believe on him through their word. He prays for himself, he prays for the apostles, he prays for the church. But before we open up that lengthy prayer, let's look at the address of the prayer as he prayed to his father, and from that learn some facts and principles regarding the Lord Jesus that will help us comprehend the essence and meaning not only of this chapter but of the whole Gospel of John and our very salvation. First of all, consider with me that the Lord Jesus Christ bore and bears a unique relation to the Father. The Lord Jesus bore and bears a unique relation to the Father. And second, Christ carried and carries a consuming affection for the Father. Christ carried and carries a consuming affection for the Father. He bore and bears a unique relation to the Father, and he carried and carries a consuming affection for the Father. Now, this address is to Father. Who is this? The Father here is the one creator and provider and sustainer of all the heavens and the earth. He calls him the, the only true God who sent Jesus Christ. This is none other than the first person of the Holy Trinity. Since Jesus himself was God blessed over all, since Jesus himself was God manifest in the flesh, since the Word was God and was with God, we understand that when Jesus addresses his Father as God, he's not addressing the Trinity. He's addressing the first person of the Trinity. This is the Father in what the theologians call the economic relations of the Trinity. This is God the Father of Jesus Christ, who is God as well. This is the Father of Christ. This is the Father who sends the Spirit. He is addressing himself to his Father. Now note in the first place then that Christ bore and bears a unique relation to the Father. This relation we would call sonship. He's his son. Now his sonship arises from three things. This unique relation of sonship arises in the first place from the miraculous formation of his human nature. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. He has a unique relation to the Father by virtue of a miraculous provision of a body for him. The miraculous formation of his human nature. We're speaking of the incarnation. We're speaking of the virgin conception. Not just the virgin birth, but the virgin conception. 
Without a man, Mary conceived. And without a man in between times, Mary gave birth to the baby. Now in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, Wherefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you would not, but a body did you prepare for me. The Son of God is speaking. And he's speaking to God. And he speaks to God and says, When I came into the world, you prepared me a body. You did not want the sacrifices and offerings of the old covenant economy. You did not want the bodies and the blood of bulls and goats. They could never take away sin, as we read in chapter 9 of Hebrews. So what did you do? You prepared a body for me. As I came into the world, you prepared a body for me. Those other sacrifices would not do. You prepared a body for me. So the miraculous formation of his human nature grants to him this unique relationship to God his Father. He was, in that way, uniquely the Son of God. Who else has ever been born having been placed into the womb by God the Spirit? In this sense, the Son of God. No one else. <coughs> Whoever might claim it, he's unique. Second, this relation of sonship not only arises from the miraculous <coughs> excuse me, the miraculous formation of his human nature, but it also arises from his being constituted the Redeemer and the Lord of man. It arises from his being constituted the Redeemer and the Lord of man. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 29. The Father, when it speaks of God in this passage, it is speaking specifically of God the Father. Because in verse 29 of Romans 8 we read, For whom he did foreknew, foreknow, he also foreordained or predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, what was the end of that purpose? That he, the Son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. It was the purpose of the Father in sending the Son into the world that the Son become the head of a new humanity. That the Son be granted headship, rule, lordship over a new humanity. That he become the second Adam who stands at the head, the federal headship of a new human race. And a new man is made out of him, not Jew, not Gentile, but both come together in one, in one new man. And so the Father constituted His Son to become the Son of God in a mediatorial capacity whereby He would redeem His people from their sins. And in that He bears a unique relationship of sonship. Turn back to Romans chapter 1. The Apostle introduces the Gospel to the Romans by telling them that he was called to be an apostle separated to the gospel of God. And in verse 2 he says in the first chapter, the gospel of God which he promised afore through his prophets in the holy scriptures 
And what is the essence and the central theme of this gospel of God promised through the prophets in the scriptures? It concerns his, God's, son. And in what way does it concern him as son? He was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. That, that aspect of giving him a body, of granting him the miraculous human nature. Who was declared or literally determined to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, even Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, there's a twofold aspect here of his sonship. There's his birth as the seed of David. And there's his constitution as being declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Are you familiar with the scriptures that cite that in the resurrection it is the Father saying to the Son, Thou art my beloved Son, this day have I begotten thee. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It is connected, that passage in Psalm 110, about his eternal priesthood and his being granted the authority to exercise the office of a priest is connected in the book of Acts to the resurrection. It's when he's raised from the dead that he is in unique capacity to be declared with power by the resurrection of the dead to be the unique Son of God who saves his people. He's constituted the Redeemer of mankind and the Lord of all mankind by the resurrection. And in that he bears a unique relation of sonship. He's the Son of God with power through the resurrection. He's the Son of God you can't compare with any other because he's been made the Redeemer of mankind and he's been put on the throne and given a name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Now just briefly turn back to John 17 and I'll show you the passages in verses 2 through 4 that show us what this is about. We'll open this up in the future, God willing, but just to see it. Verse 2. Even as thou gave him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him he should give eternal life. And this is life eternal that they should know thee the only true God and him whom thou didst send even Jesus Christ. I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Now notice in those three verses there are three things the Father gave the Son. In verse 2, he gave him authority over all flesh. And that authority was to be exercised expressly at the point of giving life to men. The second thing he gave him, verse 2, to all whom you've given him, he gave him a people. He not only gave him authority to give life, he gave him a direct, definite, specific, particular people to whom to give life. He put into his hands the elect. He get granted to his son the people of God. He put them in his power. He gave them to him and he gave him the authority to give to those whom the Father gave to him life. And the third thing he gave him in verse 4 is a work to do. I have accomplished the work which you gave me. He gave him authority. He gave him a people. He gave him a work. He came into the world with a people given to him. He came into the world with authority given to him to save those people from their sins and to give them eternal life. He gave, came into the world with a job to be done. He was sent 
to do something. For this cause came I forth. Don't be surprised for me to lay down my life. This is the reason I came. Peter, don't try to stop me from dying. Be it far from you, Lord. Your Messiah, your King, King David's son will never die. Get behind me, Satan. You savor not the things that be of God, but the things that be of man. Your view of the gospel, your view of salvation is carnal and earthy and man-centered. But God's saving gospel is a different kind. It is through my death that men will be saved. I've been given a work to do. And he says to the Father in this high priestly prayer, in fact, it is as though it's all done. It is as though he is already at the right hand of God interceding for us. And I believe I can show that to you later in this passage. How that he is praying from the perspective of one who's already left the world, who's already in heaven, and who's already interceding. I personally believe that in verse 13 when he says, I've said these things in the world that my joy may be full in them. I believe what he's saying. I wanted them to get a, a glimpse of the kind of things that I'm interceding in heaven all the time. I let them hear some of the words that are being reached out of my person and my presence in glory. I want them to hear something of the essence of the intercessions that I'm making for them. And that'll, uh, that'll thrill their, that'll give them joy. If they ever grasp what the, the intercessor is doing for them and asking for them, that'll, that'll give them joy. And what he's doing, in my view, is unveiling something of the, the ongoing intercession, the ongoing, may we call it, prayer of our high priest in heaven right now. And I think we can see that as we develop, but we don't have time tonight to see it. Just to notice, he's given these three things. Authority, a people, and a task. And that task is to save them from their sins. The name he was given, Jesus. That he, because he, it will be he that will save his people from their sins. So the Lord Jesus Christ has a unique relation to the Father, arising first from the miraculous formation of his human nature, and from his being constituted Redeemer and Lord of all mankind. In fact, he's given this human nature so that he can redeem them, so that he can be made like them, so that he can be a merciful and faithful high priest, and so that he can represent them in his death. And all this is interrelated. But the third thing, he bears a unique relationship to the Father, not by divine will and by divine work and by divine decree, but in addition to the first two that we've seen, he bears a unique relation to the Father arising from the relation that has eternally existed between them as divine persons. Though he were made a son in, a, in, a, in the flesh, uniquely, though he were constituted human by a miraculous giving of him, to him of a body, Though he were constituted redeemer of all mankind, and in those two things bears a unique relationship to the Father, yet there's a third sense in which he is unique. He has ever existed as the Son of God. He has always been the Son of God in an eternal relationship with the, with the Father. The scriptures speak of him as the only begotten Son of God. That literally means uniquely begotten. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, we read another passage regarding our Lord's identity and his relationship with the Father. In 5, 8, though he was a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. So in one sense, he became a son by being born of the virgin, and in that way, God was his father. But in another sense, he already was a son 
the Son of God. He did not become the second person of the Trinity when he was born into the world. He did not become the second person of the Trinity when he died and rose again and it was said to him, This day have I begotten thee, thou art a priest forever. He was ever begotten. He is ever proceeding from the Father. You say, that doesn't make sense. I didn't claim that it made sense. If you ever described and defined God, that doesn't make sense. Can you define you? You don't make sense. The whole universe is a puzzle if you back up and think long enough, and you can think yourself into virtual mental oblivion if you'll do so. Much saner, much healthier, simply to read the Bible, believe it, and live by it. And stay out of those dark meanderings of speculations which God has not been pleased to reveal. But I tell you, the scriptures declare he has ever been a son, though being in the form of God. Though being on an equal with God, he did not think that a thing to be held onto or grasped and clutched. But he gave up certain of the glorious prerogatives as that person and humbled himself. He learned obedience, though he were a son and did not have to learn obedience. He wasn't a servant, but he became a servant. He was a son. He became a servant. So that servants could become sons. And in that everlasting relation with the Father, he bears uniqueness in his relationship. He was before he became the firstborn among the many brethren. He was the Son of God. There is a distinction and an identity with him. In John 1, what did we, what did we read? He, the Word, was what? With God? Well, that means there's two different persons there. There's God and there's the Word. Literally, face to face. Toward God. And yet then the next phrase, and he was God. The Word was with God. But he wasn't just with God, he was God. So what are we taught? We're taught there's at least two persons in the Godhead there. There's God and there's God. There's God and there's the God with God. It's one of the things the Jehovah's Witnesses want to remove from the Bible. And they've done so in the New World Translation. And if you keep harping on that with them, they'll back off your porch eventually. You keep challenging them with that, and they'll back off your porch. The Gospel of John, in fact, if you will learn it, if you'll learn the great text of Jesus' claims for himself, you'll be able to get rid of most of them in short order. Don't stand and argue. Don't stand and listen. Say, you want to hear the gospel? You want to talk truth? Open up the gospel of John. Go get your Bible. Open up John. Don't invite him in for cookies. But stand on the porch and open the gospel of John and start with verse 1, chapter 1. And go to those texts. I and my Father are one. My Father and I always work. Show them where the Jews understood what he said. They thought he was blaspheming and claiming to be God. They tried to stone him for it. Go through John. You won't get the whole chapter. You won't get through all of John. They'll be gone. Or they'll be converted. And in our experience, we've not seen the latter yet. The point I'm making is the Lord Jesus bears a unique identity in relation with his Father, an everlasting Son. I and the Father are one. Let's look at some of the passages in the Scriptures. In John chapter 10, and then we'll have to close. Verse 30. <clears throat> now, I was aware tonight that I was not going to get very far, but I'm, I'm trying to lay the foundation for you. Perhaps this is a good time to do it. Verse 30 of John 10. 
He says in verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And then in verse 30, I and my Father are one. My Father is greater than all. I and my Father are one. Which one of those is true? Both of them are true. But there's a mystery there. There's something that will pass your brain by. And you need to bow to it and believe it. Then in John chapter 5, verse 19. And I'm just giving you a smattering of them. John 5, 19. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Verily, verily, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father doing. For what things soever he does, these the Son also does in like manner. Whatever the Father is doing, there's two things about the Son. The Son sees everything the Father's doing. Now you can't, nobody else has that relation. No man has seen God at any time, John tells us. But the Son of God, he has revealed him because he's seen him. In Matthew we're told, no man knows the Father except the Son and him to whom the Son is willing to reveal him. So here he says, I see what the Father is doing and not only do I have the intimate, transparent right to know everything my Father's doing, I do whatever he does. What higher claims to equality could you ask? I see what he's doing and I do the same thing. No man can make that claim except the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. In like manner, he does the things the Father does. And then again, in chapter 14 of John, verse 9. Philip asked this typical apostolic question that if we had been the Lord, we would have been so exasperated by this time with these thick heads that we would not have wasted much time with them. One of the things that pastors can learn from so much is the Lord's example in dealing with his flock. How patient he was with those that you could tell over and over and over and over and over again. They still stare at you thickly. One day they wake up and it's as though, uh, often it happens this way, some visiting preacher comes and preaches what we've been preaching for ten years and afterwards the guy says, boy, that's the most wonderful stuff I ever heard. I never saw that before. It's so humbling to the resident pastor because he says, well, you, I, I preached on that two weeks ago. Where were you? But that's God's way. That's God's way. We, we have to be patient as we teach. And if you ever give witness or teach people, especially your children, they're not going to grasp it all. They have to be told over and over and over again. Some of you learn faster than others and you think that I beat about these things and you want me to move on to the next thing. But understand there are others that don't learn as fast as you. There are others that didn't catch it the first 16 times. Repetition doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. And those that know the need that they have for repetition, they're not complaining or fussing. They fully appreciate the efforts at repetition. So the Lord is patient. And here's Philip in verse 8. Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough. And what's the Lord's response? Have I been so long time with you and you do not know me, Philip? Isn't that an interesting response? Show us the Father and that's good enough. And he says, I've been with you all this time and you don't know me? What's he saying? I'm talking about the Father here, and he's asking me if I know him. Of course I know you. My point is, I want to know the Father. That's my question. Yeah, I know you, but I want to know the Father. And that's what Jesus is saying. Well, you know me, and you want to know the Father? 
Whom do you think I am? You see the point? Not identical to the first person of the Trinity, but in his deity, in his authority, in his ability to save, he's no different. He's God. Have I been loved so long? He that has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? That's what I'm all about. I'm here showing you the Father. The Son, He has declared Him. You see what a shame it is and what a hypocritical, pitiful statement it is for people to say, I believe in God, but I don't like Jesus. Or to claim that they have high regard for Jesus and yet they reject His claims as being God. To give Him the flattery of a great prophet when the very central theme of His prophetic ministry was His deity and therefore to call the great prophet a liar or a lunatic. He was either the greatest megalomaniac that ever lived or he was a flat liar. And in either case, he has no right to be called a great prophet. If he's a great prophet, you have to believe what he said. And if you believe what he said, he claims to be God. And he proves it. Here's how John Brown paraphrases this prayer. Thou... The Lord Jesus speaking to his Father, with whom I have existed in unity of essence and perfection from unbeginning eternity, and by whose will I have become flesh and have been made redeemer of my brethren whom you've given me, grant that your purpose for which you sent me into the world will be accomplished in bringing them all to glory. That's the essence of this prayer. Thou with whom I have existed in perfection for eternity, perfect that for which you set me into the world, that they may be one, that they may behold my glory, that they may be with me where I am in glory. That's the culmination of his saving purpose in the world. The Lord Jesus Christ bore and bears a unique relation to the Father. Well, I must Stop there for your own sake. I remember the Lord, after teaching for three days, looked on the multitudes, and he said, they're fainting in the way, they need something to eat. He did not continue to batter them with spirituality. He stopped and fed them, and I know that your flesh is weary and you have things to do in the week, and I've preached a long time, but I I wanted to do this to give you just a whetting of the appetite, if I may, to what you're entering into. The eternal God the eternal God who has now become the God-man, who was sent into the world to save us from our sins, is here entering into the throne of heaven in the Holy of Holies to address his unique Father for his sake and our sake and for the glory of God's sake. Let us take off the sandals from our feet and let us approach into this passage with utmost solemnity and thankfulness. I ask you this merely. I wonder if you know something of the sweetness and the grandeur of this prayer. I wonder if you know something of the majesty and the worth of the one who uttered it. I wonder if you know something of the greatness and the power and the glory of the one to whom it was uttered. I wonder if you know a little of the felt earnestness that he had when he prayed when you pray. I wonder 
Is it your custom when you're under stress about to die to be thinking mostly of God's glory and man's good and God's people and praying for them? Do you see that's what was happening from verse 6 to the end of the chapter? That's all he's concerned about is the people of God. Now he's about to be persecuted. This is the night just after he's been betrayed and he knows it. One out of twelve of his disciples has left him and betrayed him. One, the others have acted like fools. The rest are going to scatter and forsake him later tonight. And here he is, instead of saying, Oh, what a load you've put on me. Oh, why doesn't anybody understand what I'm going through? Rather than continue to plead with these dull-headed apostles to listen to him, not to sleep through the garden later, he addresses his holy concern from the depths of his heart for us. Do you know something of that spirit when you come to pray? Are you so self-centered and preoccupied with your struggles and your tribulations and your problems that you spend the better part of your praying thinking of you and your needs rather than praying the way the Lord prays in the office of a priest for others? The, the, the shortest path between your problems and your happiness is intercessory prayer. You want to get out of your trouble? Start praying for somebody else. And stay there. I trust that you'll learn something of that spirit in this prayer. We have a selfish generation. And may I say it as your pastor and brother and companion in sin, we have a selfish church. Now, I don't say that to mean that you're not a beloved and dear people, because I know you are. But we need to feel the weight of our own self-centeredness in the light of our Savior's example. What trouble have you come upon that, he, that, that comes close to what he was facing? How do you pray when you pray? Learn from this one how you ought to pray. With what direction, with what motive, with what spirit you ought to pray. How unlike Jesus we are. Do you know a little bit of the joy that he intended you to know when he said this prayer openly and publicly before his apostles? Do you, when you read this, gain a bit of confidence and a bit of encouragement by knowing that this is the stuff about which he intercedes for you all the time? Right now your Savior sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven, pleading, as it were, with his open wounds and his finished work in his exalted, resurrected, glorified body that you will be brought to the desired end of his saving purpose, that you will make it to glory, that you will behold his face in glory, that you will live with him forever, that all of us and all of his people through all generations will be one together. That's what he prays. Sanctify you through the truth. He's praying for that. You who think there's no hope for you. He's standing for you. Now I ask you this. You believe his prayers will be heard? Father, I know that thou always hearest me. Oh, you better be glad of two things. That every time the Lord Jesus makes request of his Father, his request is granted. And second, you better be glad that he's making these kinds of requests for you. I tell you, your hearts will be floating and flying and soaring if you taste a bit of this passage 
and comprehend a bit of what's going on for you in heaven. And he's let you in on it in this passage. May we learn, as we consider this passage of God's holy word, at least some measure of the richness of the truth and the experience that it conveys. And may we all have some increased delight in the saving person and work of our blessed Redeemer. And may we all have something of some growth in conformity to him as we study the Lord's Prayer. May we see our hearts grow and may we be found in the place where we ourselves will learn to pray somewhat like this when we pray. May we understand as we approach these series on this passage that we too indeed stand on holy ground. And may God help us with it. Let us pray. O Lord, in the face of such wondrous, holy, precious, substantive revelation, we feel ourselves to be utterly unworthy and unable to handle it. How feeble are our efforts. And so we would offer them up to you that you would sanctify them and bless them and enlarge them and multiply them even as you did that lad's fish and loaves. We ask you, Lord, that you would sprinkle the dew of heaven upon our meditations and that you would teach us the significance in the heart of these wondrous words. O oh Lord, make us more like yourself. May your own cry, your own prayer, your own purpose for us that we be one, that we be sanctified in the truth, that we comprehend the depth and the breadth and the width and the height. May all of that come to pass increasingly among us. And may this church be more and more an expression of the fellowship of priests who know their high priest and who are made more and more like him. Oh God, thank you for these words you have given us in the book. Speak them to the depths of our hearts. Forgive us for our shallowness and correct us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.